Welcome to the Friends of Ben Pace podcast. My name is Josh Plotkin. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Nurse Practitioner Associates for Continuing Education, better known as NPACE. NPACE is a nonprofit continuing education organization founded in 1980 by a group of nurse practitioners looking to help advance the profession and bring nurse practitioners from across the country together for education and connection. NPACE is an ANCC accredited provider of continuing education, offering in-person CE conferences and online CE programs for nurse practitioners. We welcome you to visit NPACE.org for more information on everything NPACE. We thank you for joining us for the Friends of NPACE podcast, and we're excited that you've chosen to tune into our conversation today about management of obesity in primary care. Before we introduce our guests, we want to remind our audience, wherever you may get your podcast, to please subscribe, rate, leave comments and reviews, and let us know what you think. The Friends of NPACE podcast can be found on the NPACE Learning Center at learn.npace.org slash podcast, on YouTube, on the NPACE YouTube channel, and on Spotify and Apple by searching for the Friends of NPACE podcast. Before we introduce our speakers, we have some important information to share regarding continuing education for this podcast. This episode of the Friends of NPACE podcast contains 0.5 CE credits. In order to earn CE credits, no matter where you may listen or view this podcast, if you would like to earn CE, you must complete the post-test and evaluation for this podcast on learn.npace.org slash podcast. Relevant disclosures for each of our speakers and guests can be found in the disclosure section of the podcast on learn.npace.org slash podcast. For this episode, we would like to thank Lily for providing an educational grant to help with funding for the podcast. With all of that said, we can't wait to get our conversation underway with our two amazing guests today. And without further ado, let's introduce them. Our first introduction is one of NPACE's team member and our podcast host, Terry Schmidt. Terry is currently the executive director of NPACE and has been with the organization since 2020. She also works for Galileo Health as a family nurse practitioner and diabetes advisor, and previously served as a professor and dean at Chamberlain University School of Nursing. She works in various clinical and educational leadership positions as well. Joining Terry today is Christine Kessler and Angie Golden. First, Christine is an award-winning nurse practitioner, national international speaker, prolific author, and content consultant specializing in general endocrinology, genomic medicine, obesity, and metabolic medicine. In her more than four decades of advanced practice nursing, she's held diverse roles in academia, research, and clinical practice. The latter, as a critical care clinical specialist and ACNP intensivist, and an endocrine specialist. After 15 years as a senior nurse practitioner at the Department of Endocrinology and Metabolic Medicine at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, Christine founded the Metabolic Medicine Associates in rural Virginia, where she provides general endocrine services and weight loss management, as well as national endocrine consultation to providers. Christine has received numerous top clinical practice and patient satisfaction awards, including the Fort Belvoir Hospital Development of Medicine Silver Ace Award for top medical provider 
and the rare coin of excellence personally awarded by the Surgeon General for having the highest patient satisfaction rating of all healthcare providers in the Army worldwide. Christine is also a fellow of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Joining Christine today is Dr. Angie Golden. She is past president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, and she is also a fellow of AANP in the and the Obesity Medicine Association. She owns an NP obesity treatment clinic in Flagstaff, Arizona, where she provides evidence-based obesity treatment. She earned OMA's NPPA Certificate of Advanced Clinical Education and the Specialist Certification of Obesity Professional Education and internationally recognized certification. Dr. Golden has a great deal of experience as a consultant in the development of patient education materials, has authored a book, Treating Obesity in Primary Care, several book chapters on obesity management, written several peer-reviewed articles, participated in research, and has been interviewed by lay media on obesity treatment. She presents nationally and internationally with an emphasis on obesity, health policy, leadership, and clinical care. At this time, I'm so excited to hand over the conversation to Terry, Angie, and Christine. Yay, thank you, Josh. <laughs> that was great. I loved hearing everyone's bios because I know how much you guys do and I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you, Josh, for starting us off. All right, so the beauty of technology is we're all over the country, the three of us, and here we are talking about something that honestly is very near and dear to my heart. I will tell you what I told Mimi when we ran um, the pilot podcast is that I can be on a shift and I can see however many patients an hour, and I guarantee you almost every single one of them in one way, shape or form, whether they're coming to see me for obesity or not, this is why they're here or is affecting the other things I'm seeing. Hypertension, diabetes, depression, sleep apnea, joint pain, back pain, endometriosis, PCOS. It, you, I can't get out of a shift. And Christine, I know you and I recently had a conversation about trends here. So before we even get any, because I can get tangential on obesity really quickly, um, is I want to hear why, what got you interested, why you guys are here. Either one of you can kick this off, but I'm going to throw this first question out to both of you because I think it'll help us kind of understand where we're headed. And the question, Angie, was was talking about what got us interested or? Yeah, what, yeah, what initially got you interested in, in obesity ahead, management? Well, interestingly enough, what got me interested in obesity was while I was the president of AANP, they were writing the 2013 guidelines, TOS, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and they invited AANP to sit at the table because they mm -hmm. felt like the primary care needed to be there. So um, AAFP, AAPA was all, were also invited. But as the president, I got to go to that meeting. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure that I knew any more about obesity than many of the people even listening did. I had been trained that obesity helped people learn how to eat better and move more. So, you know, the old adage, eat less and move more. And I don't think I slept for 72 hours 
because after the first day of sitting in this meeting, and I realized that obesity was a true endocrine disorder, mm. I was like cramming everything I could find to read all night long so that I would be ready for the next day. Oh, gosh. And I felt like I'm re- representing all these nurse practitioners. I better right. know what I'm talking about. And then I just became totally immersed in this disease from that moment on. And I think because my father suffered from severe obesity and actually died from the disease, it's really what kept me engaged in learning more and more and more about the disease. And I came home from that meeting and said to my husband, I know what I'm going to do when I'm done being the president of AANP. I'm going to open an obesity practice. And he kind of looked at me like, really? Because I already had a primary care practice. And I said, this is, yeah, this is what I want to do. And that's exactly what I did when my four-year term of serving AANP and the NPs that they represented came to an end. I opened my obesity practice and I've never looked back. Um, And so that's, that's how it started. And, and I think that it's how it starts for so many Mm. individuals is someone in their family or they themselves have obesity and they hear someone like Chris talking and find out, oh my gosh, this is a neuroendocrine disorder. And then they start to dive into it. And all of a sudden they go, oh, yes, I want to do more with this. I want to help people understand this disease. So I think that's the path that many of us end up taking. Chris's was a little different though. So Chris, (laughs) tell us how this happened for you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I came into obesity medicine uh, from a totally different perspective. I came in as a nerd. I am a nerd. It um, when I began full-time endocrine practice, uh, endocrinology practice in 2000, I quickly noticed that about 80% of my patients, much to your point, Terry, uh, 80% of my patients struggle with overweight and obesity. And just as quickly, I realized there's a common thread between them all. And that was insulin resistance. I saw that in adiposity. I saw that linked in type 2 diabetes and then cardiometabolic disease. That got my nerd on. And so I started looking at the physiology of fat cells, adipocytes, and I was stunned to realize that fat cells released by hormones and chemicals that were inflammatory, inflammatory cytokines, much like my prior specialty was sepsis and septic shock and the cellular chatter sepsis. So it was cytokines, it was inflammatory. Well, that just changed everything. I saw this as a disease state. I started blabbing to my colleagues, endocrine colleagues um, in, in rounds and in, in regions around in, in Virginia, talking about this as a disease state. And that was in 2003. In 2007, I took it national, started speaking at AMP and other places. And I, you know, I make it very dramatic. I became like a born again obesity medicine person and trying to get people to look at this disease seriously. And my first title was fatal fat, (laughs) looking at the disease of obesity, trying to be dramatic. And then I started talking about diabetes. I talked about cardiobesity. There was no such terms back in those days, but I just started Mm -hmm. using that and um, trying to get 
people interested, and I don't think I changed any minds, much to the point Angie made. It was in 2012 when AMA came out and actually denoted that we have to look at obesity as a disease state, where I got gravitas, I'll say, so I could fight this battle in my clinic and was able to get, con uh, able to be allowed to for have five, uh, one half day a week to focus oh, in interim practice to work on weight loss. And that's uh, that was the first time that ever happened in a military health uh, care facility, and the rest is history. So that's how I came uh, into adiposity is in my family as well. But um, what brought me to this was the nerd side. Interesting. I like both of that. The things that stand out for me in what you just said before we get to question two is it's really only been a decade. How can it have only been a decade that we've been focusing on this disease and we still may not be in the right direction? And also, Ironically, you all ended up in the right place at the right time to be here now. So I'm so glad the universe intervened. <laughs> you know, the, the other thing about that, Terry, that I learned at that first meeting, I was seated next to Dr. George Bray, and it sort of felt like everybody in the room was coming and kissing his ring. I mean, there was not a single person in that room that was not showing such respect. So that was the first person I Googled. But um, he wrote a book in 1985 on the pathophysiology of obesity. And he will tell you today in his 80s that he couldn't figure out why it took the AMA so long, decades and decades, to finally recognize that his 1985 work deserved the credit for obesity to be called a disease and I think Chris's story follows that very well. Yes. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, we all give the AMA credit for naming it a disease in 2012, when in reality, we had all these tremendous minds long before then who were trying to call from the mountaintop and just none of us were hearing it yet. Yeah. Well, hopefully we are now and changing that. All right. So here's the next thing before we get into treatment. Angie, I'm going to direct this toward you. What are the keys to obesity management that clinicians are missing in primary care management? Why are we getting this wrong? Well, I think the reason we're getting it wrong is our educational model. We're still being taught in our educational model that we just need to tell people to eat less and move more. Mm. We're still treating obesity as a behavioral disease. We're still not recognizing the neuroendocrine dysfunction. So I, I am a person with the chronic disease of obesity. So right now I'm in management. I'm in chronic management. But when my BMI was 34.9, people looked at me and thought I ate too much and I didn't exercise enough. That's all behavioral. Nobody recognized that long before I had excess adiposity, the chronic disease of obesity had already mm. begun and I had an endocrine dysfunction. In other words, the hormones that impact weight regulation were no longer working. So I had elevated hunger hormone and either decreased satiety hormones or my brain couldn't hear them. We all know about insulin resistance. We've known about it for years, but we don't hear anybody talking about leptin resistance 
which is the hormone for satiety. So I was hungrier, therefore I was eating more. And instead of my body being able to increase my energy metabolism to offset that increase in food consumption, right, or to increase my satiety, so I wouldn't eat as much the next day, which is what happens if you don't have obesity. In obesity, my body just goes, oh, well, we better store this stuff. And so slowly over time, increased adiposity occurs. And then we get adiposopathy, like Chris was talking about. That is not being taught in our mm. graduate programs. So that's the very beginning key of what's missing. Then we aren't getting it taught to the people after they graduate. Mm-hmm. So it's, to me, the key that's missing is for people to understand it as a disease. If they understood it as a disease, like they do diabetes, they would say, I'm going to have to treat it. Yeah. They would quit saying, I don't have time for one more disease. Because nobody says that about diabetes. If a patient comes in with an elevated hemoglobin A1C, everyone that's listening says, oh, wait a minute, I got to do something about that. I don't care what the patient came in for. Their hemoglobin A1C is 13. I'm going to look at that. Right. And I'm going to do something (laughs) about it. Somebody comes in with severe obesity, a BMI of 42. They may not even mention it, let alone start doing something to treat it. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. Go ahead, Chris. What do you want to add? Uh, to, to add to, to that point, and she's right, and that's why my endocrine nerd got in, because it is an, an <laughs> endocrinology disorder. Um, the other point to Angie's mentioning this is, and she and I have talked about this a lot, uh, we're not starting soon enough. So we're looking at mm. obesity, we're missing the point. You brought up t- type 2 diabetes, Angie, and this is this is an important point, because we're, we're now there's a big focus on prediabetes, and everybody's looking at, well, I'm looking at pre-diabetes, and that's where we're looking at the biomarkers, we're seeing it. We need, we're waiting too late. The disease has gone on. There's a lot of uh, morbidities and a lot of complications associated. We need to look at pre-obesity, which is overweight, and then beyond that, looking at those biomarkers, could be genotypes. Uh, we don't look at all the biomarkers yet. We don't know them yet to see even before the start of uh, pre-obesity so or overweight. So that's what is missing in obesity management. We're not, we're doing intervention. We're not doing prevention. And um, and prevention is aimed at the wrong thing. It still is Angie's talked about. It's, it's a neurohormonal. They're looking at just behavior. It's going to be more than that. I can guarantee you, like we're doing with pre-diabetes. Weight loss is part of it, but there's a lot of bio... The cellular chatter is off, and we need to start fixing that early on. But we're not there yet. At least think pre-obesity. I'm always looking at at that. That's the focus. Okay. Treatment. I'm I'm rapidly taking notes. If you see me looking down, this is what Derry's doing. She's taking notes. I want to recap what you just said because I think we aren't saying this enough. One education is near and dear to my heart. We have got to change our neuroendocrine education models in graduate school. We aren't getting in depth enough. We just aren't. Some pathophys has got to change there, but we have to treat earlier and we have got to look at pre-obesity. Okay. I got those two things down. Those are the big keys about what we're missing in primary care. I love that. Okay. Now I know you can see I've got you guys on a roll. We're going to, what I would say is Those of us who went to school in the dark ages, because I think we had gas lamps when I went to nursing school 
and then nurse practitioner school. But we're going to do some education. I'll do a plug for this later, but I'm going to give you guys three hours to really work with primary care clinicians because our goal is to change what's happening. It's not just to educate people. The ultimate outcome is what happens with the patients, right? So we've got that coming up. We're going to talk about that in October. All right. So we know what we are missing as primary care clinicians. What I want to know, and Chris, I'm, I'm going to direct this toward you. Why? Why are we seeing the trends that we're seeing? Because I think it's going to build a little bit on what we're missing. Right. It's a simple question, Terry. Very complex answer, but I'm going to keep it simple. First of all, the obesity epidemic uh, actually made its appearance very dramatically in the late 1970s. As a child of the 50s, I never saw it, but it's true in the late 1970s, and it continues to conti continues unabated. Now, what went wrong? It's multifactorial, it's very complex, but the foundation is a combination of genetics and epigenetic and environmental changes. So mm. genetics, environmental changes, and epigenetic changes, they go hand in hand, resulting in, much to Angie's point, is biohormonal uh, disruptions. Now, that led to abnormalities in energy uh, intake, that is what Angie talked about, is the appetite and satiety regulations about chemistry off on that. There's energy storage was messed up. That's fats mass. It's not mm. working right and uh, growing correctly. And then there's energy metabolism impaired, how the body utilizes energy. So all these things are impaired. Now, genetics and polygenic risk, as Angie has a family history of this, is a big player in all of this, but DNA is not destiny. And that's where you mm. get the environmental changes that came in and lifestyle changes that occurred colleagues early in the last century. It didn't just come on in 1970s. This is a epigenetics, epigenetic changes. And what happened now, the biggest thing is the environmental impact. Uh, there's many, many causes, but the environmental impact that I focus on because I see it in all the other autoimmune disorders, is endocrine disrupting chemicals that had a big uh, environmental impact mm. uh, on us and lifestyles. And this altered our food and our uh, food growing practices. And you look at plants, crop growing is quite different. We talked about this a lot. Livestock, what are they eating? What are we injecting them with? Hormones, antibiotics, we gotta think microbiome, another topic that I've been speaking mm. for 30 years. And then high, this is a big one, highly processed food and highly caloric dense food that's in great abundance in this in this country and but not only that we've also changed thing we have shelf life extenders color enhancers flavor enhancer we're utterly enhanced our food not only that the the environment around us look at the clothes we're wearing that got a wrinkle why what chemicals in that what am i <laughs> absorbing i mean it's everywhere right. you look at the, the clothes you're looking else in the environment but stress is endemic. It's, we're talking uterine stress now. We never looked at that as significantly. And there's a big epidemic, and that is non-nutritive sleep. We have a sleep deprivation, a deprivation um, problem pandemic in this country as well. So all these things play a role that leads mm. to what we're talking about, the biohormonal mess up that uh, leptin resistance, insulin resistance, and all the other uh, markers that, that change the way we eat and how it's not just food, but how the food, how we react to the food has changed. But I think the more important thing, and this is the point we've been talking about, Terry and, and, and you, Angie. Please, we're talking about um, why are we seeing this emerging? We've been seeing this emerge since the late 70s. Yeah. How can you ignore it? It's yeah. everywhere. 
It's growing more and more. The question is, is why did we ignore it? And that is the shame of the medical profession. That was the question you asked. Why is it that it has been ignored? And Angie and I have talked about this and a lot of it that we'll be talking about and, and other times we're speaking together on this topic, but that's another, uh, that's later. I'm just so grateful. And I started blabbing about this in 2003 and saw this isn't endocrine disorder, a metabolic, cardiometabolic altogether saw that it's been 20 years. But I am so grateful that Terry, that you and Pace has taken an interest that you're calling us in here. And by the way, what I'm also grateful for is a side positive thing with this whole obesity medicine thing in my journey. I met Angie who's become one of my best friends through this. It's through this common, we, we have a passion as you're seeing with yeah. both of us on this disorder. And you know what, because we've ignored it so long, it, it, there's been a, it's been to the detriment to many patients that we've seen, we're talking two decades that we yeah. could have done more for. Let, we have to stop that now and let it go forward. So thank you. And Terry, I think there's another thing to bring up about why we're seeing this, because I can actually tell you exactly when my genetic susceptibility for obesity got turned on. I was placed on three obesogenic medications. Yes. Now, I had to be placed on them. I had a severe cardiac situation and there was no choice. I mean, mm -hmm. I look back and go, well, okay, maybe one of the three medications, they could have used a different one. But every day, the people in our audience are actually prescribing medications mm -hmm. that have the potential to be weight promoting, AKA for a patient who does not yet have obesity turned on, the susceptibilities there, they may prescribe something that actually turns that susceptibility on. It's been talked about as genetics is the lock and the endocrine disrupting the environment, something mm -hmm. biologic, or perhaps an endocrine, an, an obesogenic medication is the key that, that opens the lock. And right. so yeah. I think that's something that is another piece of the trend that we don't often think about in the last mm -hmm. 20 years. Many of our medications that we prescribe for other things are actually yes. obesogenic. So and I think that's another piece of our trend. I love that both of you brought that up. We could go on and on about that. We we have a pharmacist, Jay Gupta. <laughs> I know. We have a pharmacist that works with us, Jay Gupta. And one of the first things he talks about is that. He's like, if I have H2O and I add another molecule of just oxygen, which is great by itself, I all of a sudden have hydrogen peroxide. And he goes, we combo meds all the time. We're do And he said, we don't know what's happening with that, what we're turning on and off. And he said, we're just spraying ourselves with chemicals. So not that meds aren't good. I mean, we all practice Absolutely. here and we have to go with the best that we know, but I love that we're discussing. But there are some meds that there are good alternatives yes. and we just don't think about them. So I think that's one thing. And I think that's something that Chris and I are gonna spend some time on in the workshop that you mentioned. Yay! Is, okay, yep. I have a whole list to start of the, the patient on, but is there an alternative? Right. Okay. Um, and sometimes there isn't, let's face it. Patients who have schizophrenia, you gotta you gotta use the atypical antipsychotics, and every one of those are obesogenic. But there are ways to offset that. So I think that just a teaser for our oh. for our workshop, <laughs> a teaser for the workshop. 
I um, love that. Is, oh, yes, Chris. We're on the yeah, same page yeah. there. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> that was good. Ah, I love talking to you guys. Okay. All right. Angie, the next question is for you. We're going to talk a little bit about behavior because that's what we teach. Sometimes I think we overwhelm patients with that. What is the most impactful lifestyle thing we can do? Chris already hinted at one of them when she talked about these multifactorial causes that we got where we are, but what do you think? No, I think when I start to approach a patient about lifestyle changes, I back away from their obesity and I look at what their other obesity-related complications. You started listing them, Terry, and I was afraid you're going to do all 236, and that would be the end of the podcast. Um, but I say to them, you know, when your hypertension was diagnosed, when your diabetes was diagnosed, what did they tell you to do about your eating? And they're like, oh, yeah, they gave me this diet to follow, this DASH diet. <laughs> So I remind them that for every chronic disease, eating plans and activities support the entire part of the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is that most of us with obesity have been shamed by our healthcare providers by right up front saying, you need to eat differently and you need to be more active. Although most healthcare providers say you need to eat less and you need to move more. So, you know, you need mm -hmm. to diet and do physical exercise. Mm -hmm. I try to make sure it's clear that there's no shaming about what we're about to talk about, that we're going to talk about ways that they can participate in their treatment by using eating plans and physical activity to support their overall treatment plan. It is not the two pieces of treatment. Gotcha. It's a part of the bigger plan. So I really start out with a much broader look at treatment before we hone in on the shared decision-making of what changes they want to make. Mm. And mm. sometimes it's a whole eating plan. But I would say most of the time, the very first impactful thing is for them to start tracking what they eat. Because when they become aware of, and I just had a patient um, this previous Monday that said until she started tracking, she truly did not realize how often she was using drive-through. Oh. Like she knew she was going, I mean, she knew she was at a drive-through frequently, but not truly how often. And wow. as we talk about ultra-processed foods, that became her primary goal in her shared decision-making was to reduce that. And so for every patient, it's different. So when they're in the active phase of obesity treatment, it's about how do you change that relationship with foods? Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. Whether that's decreasing ultra-processed foods, maybe you're a person who's not been dieting your whole life, so you do our are eating 25, 2,800 calories a day, and you can do calorie restriction as your sole initial process. But for most patients, it's about finding small changes okay. and moving forward. And then starting to understand how much are you moving. But it's not until maintenance that activity becomes critical. 
but you can't wait until maintenance and then say, okay, I want you to move 420 minutes a week. So you're slowly increasing that through that time. So the big lifestyle change that's first is making sure that you are not shaming the patient. Then start to talk about okay. how can you change your eating? And I think Chris's point of what damage are we doing to the microbiota? So how can I how can I slowly move people towards a more healthy way of eating? Can we move just a little bit towards more whole foods? Can we reduce some ultra processed foods? Okay. I love that. Now, Chris. some patients, they are in 100%, and they, especially up here in northern Arizona, they are whole food, plant-based, bam, they are in. They're, they're 100% in. That's great if I find those people. Um, <laughs> I'll support that all day. But for most patients, it's incremental. Okay. I like that, incremental. But I like the not shaming. Chris, what would you add? And, and shaming is very important um, a lot because research is very clear. If the patient perceives judgmental behaviors on behalf of their provider, they're not going to be successful. And, mm. and it's, it, that relationship is so important, particularly with lifestyle, which is habits and changing habits is hard. And, and understand the bias is not just from us. They have their own biases towards themselves or why they have it. Yeah. So that we need that relationship. And to the point of Angie, this self-awareness uh, of what they're doing her patients, she just came across with, that's what I get to the big whys or what, I, what, why, when. And I like to look at what, so um, what do they eat? You know, generally that's one thing they do. Why do they eat? What, what's driving them? And that, that's a big thing because when you look at binge eating or if you're looking at uh, cravers or uh, addictive behaviors, that's an issue. When do you eat? This is very important because when do they, they eat late at night? If they mm. have 25% of their calories in the evening, they're going to end up hanging more onto it. And it has a lot of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. What they eat late actually increases insulin resistance. Um, and then you're looking at not only that, where do they, to Angie's point, they're going through the drive-through. How often do they they're doing that? And then this is the big one I found in, in, in endocrinology and we're dealing with a lot of autoimmune disorders, which by the way, the endocrinoscopic chemicals and everything last century has caused an increase in. And that is, how do you feel when you eat? So mm. food is drug and, and, and it affects it. Just like we're talking drugs together, you were mentioning can increase or decrease effects of the drugs. We know that through genomics and pharmacogenics, but food does the same thing, combination of food. So what I look at is how do you feel because Food has drugs. We talk about drugs with side effects, obesogenic, but foods can be, a lot of intolerances will lead to it. And I've seen patients by how they feel, do they feel better, relieved, brain fog a couple hours later, do they have pain, um, not just GI bloating, because that causes that change in the gut, Michael, this is very important because the gut is 70%, 75% of the immune system. They release mm -hmm. T cell sites. And that, when I have patients just get rid of food, they don't change calories. They just get rid of the offending foods. It could be flaxseed like it is for me, but when in other ones, but if you remove the food, no change in calories, they lose weight. So we know that even food intolerances mm -hmm. for some people mm -hmm. can increase weight if they are genetically predisposed to gain weight, even yeah. those are not. So FYI, well, how do they feel? I always add that in because I've seen uh, autoimmune disorders improve as well by getting rid of the food intolerant foods and I was stunned to see weight loss related to it. Okay, great. 
Um, all right. So, gosh, I could go on about this forever. I love talking about this stuff. Chris, you're bringing out the nerd in me also. Um, I do want to talk meds because meds are important in this conversation because we're talking about a neuroendocrine disease. So, Chris, this actually starts with you because we've had some changes in recently in what we're doing for medications for obesity. Well, three quick points because of time. Um, the three big points, primary things that clinicians understand. First is drugs, and I will talk about GLP-1s. First, um, the drugs we have approved by the FDA are safer. They're not the old fen-fen, fenfluramine, or the meridia and the problems we had uh, about 30 years ago. So they're safe. The drugs we have, they're out there now. You can lose weight at least 5%, sometimes double, triple more than that with the weight. These medications, the anti-obesity medicines are out there. They're effective in the in the responders and certainly with lifestyle changes. The big thing that's gotten people interested and all the celebrities going on uh, with this has been the GLP-1s. That's my other nerd thing, because I'm telling you, I've been a nerd about GLP-1s for uh, about 17 years. And when I saw these incretins, what it can do, these meds are exciting because they go beyond just reducing numbers on a scale, which I love, Angie you mentioned. This is more than just reducing numbers on a scale. It's not reducing just fat mass. These things uh, help mitigate a lot of the cardiometabolic or the metabolic disease risks or biomarkers. It goes beyond that. We're seeing improved glycemic control. We know that that's how they started. We know it reduces some of the biomarkers, triglycerides and the like, which are key to in, uh, mm. insulin resistance. We know though the great MACE data, so it actually independent of weight loss, we're seeing reduced cardio, um, you're seeing these GLP-1s mm. coming out, reduced, um, Good maze, so you got reduced heart attacks, reduced strokes. We just came out just a couple weeks ago coming out showing some of the researchers coming out reducing heart failure in some of these high-risk patients. And then I uh, have PEF. And then you're also seeing uh, reducing, mm. uh, it's pleiotropic for fat in the liver. We know that it has pleiotropic effects in the brain. So it does many of the morbidities and complications associated with uh, obesity, regardless of the weight loss is mitigated with the GLP-1s because this, um, as Angie said, some of these drugs are not working well or these hormones we make are not, they're resistant to or not working or not making enough in people with uh, obesity and or type 2 diabetes. So these are very exciting. And cardiologists all want to be endocrinologists now. <laughs> we got the best drugs. Well, cardiologists are kind of being forced into becoming endocrinologists now, I would say. Not of a, some of them are doing it a little reluctantly. Um, I think the one thing that I would like to encourage people to hear what Chris said is that super responders, there, there is this reality that's not being talked about because of TikTok. And that is that there are a few, there are about 3% of people who actually gain weight on GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I, the reason I think that's important for our audience to hear is that when that happens, those patients get accused of not following a diet plan. Mm. When in reality, probably, we don't know this yet, but probably we're going to find out this is about phenotypes and genomics. Right. Oh, so yes. <laughs> let's not start a shame and blame game. And so I'll out myself. I was started on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and I'm one of the 3%. I had made no changes. I was tracking my food. 
I had not made those changes and my weight went up in the first mm -hmm. six weeks. So I clearly was one of the 3% that gain weight with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So I would just, I just want our audience to understand that. Now that said, I have a family member with pretty severe obesity who is a super responder, like Chris is saying, and has lost 72 pounds on a GLP-1. Wow. So Even I think that we, you know, the, the golden ticket to all of this is how can we figure out who the responders are and who is not even before we start the medication or shortly after. And Dr. Lee Kaplan from Harvard did, did a, a recent presentation and he talked about, first of all, I love his statement and Terry, you're gonna love this. Overeating doesn't cause obesity. Obesity causes overeating, which is kind of how mm. I started this, right? Yes. But he also said, we need to quit waiting for the scale to tell us if the medication is working. Yes. That's treating the sign of obesity. Mm -hmm. right. We need to look at the symptoms mm -hmm. and our patient within two weeks of starting any of the anti-obesity medications should have some improvement in symptoms, meaning they have hunger. less hunger and or an improvement in the feeling of satiety. So, so when two we weeks. start these meds, we should be asking patients in about two to three weeks, are they having any side effects? Is their hunger less? So that means you had to have them measure their hunger objectively when they started. Scale of zero to 10, measure your hunger a couple times a day. When are you hungriest? When are you not? And measure their satiety. Did you okay. feel full? after you had servings of food. Now, two okay. to three weeks later, and every patient that's on a medication that's working for their obesity, it's impacting the endocrine and neuro dysfunction of the disease, will tell you, you know what? I'm not as hungry. I'm not eating in the evenings now. Okay. Or I don't have cravings for those foods that I did. And those symptoms are reduced very early in medication management, long before the fat mass begins to decrease or the numbers on the scale begin to decrease. And I think these are the kinds of things that help primary care mm -hmm. know if they've got the right medication. Because these I like are questions that. that can be asked and answered quickly in primary care. Okay. I like that so much. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you guys, the three hours in October is going to be so good. I'm so excited. All right. I'm going to give us one more question, and then I'll wrap us up. Because I am repeatedly frustrated with barriers to care. So we're just talking adults. In the adult population as a whole in your patients, you see what's the most frequent barrier to care for weight loss. Angie, I'm going to start with you on this one. I'm going to give you two. Okay. The first is the patient's internal bias and stigma. Okay. They're embarrassed that they have not been able to treat themselves. It kind of goes back just general education. They think 
because most of healthcare and most of America says you shouldn't be fat. And you're fat because you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. And so they're embarrassed or they have been embarrassed in a healthcare environment. I asked a patient on Monday, when was her last mammogram? And she said, I will not get another mammogram. I will not be put through that again. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what happened? She went in to get her mammogram, and the all, the tech said, I don't even know if I can fit your breast in there. Oh, my. She said, I'm not going back to be treated like that. Well, I wouldn't either. So it just shows a healthcare environment where she should have been safe, mm-hmm. put a barrier up. And that happens in primary care practices where you're asked to stand on a scale that's not in a private area. I not only don't want to see my own weight, I sure as heck don't want anybody else to see it. Right, right. And so I think the barriers come from inside the person with obesity, but also the healthcare environment that we're asking them to walk into. My father, who had severe obesity, He's five foot eight and weighed almost 400 pounds. I went to a visit and we walked right past the scale. Now, he knew they weighed my mom every time she went. Same office. Went into the room. He was asked, do you have diabetes? Nope. Okay. After the visit was over, he looked at me and said, do you think they just don't see me? Not one person mentioned my weight to me, Ange. So not bringing it up is as much a stigmatizing feel as bringing it up the wrong way. So I think those are two of the biggest barriers. I know Chris has got some more and maybe she'll bring up the whole insurance issue. But if she doesn't, you Mm. come back to me. But (laughs) I think those are the two biggest issues. I appreciate that. Those are well felt. Funny that you mentioned that because that's where I was going. So it's a patient's internal patient. That was a big thing because you, there's, they have great desire, but I always find out how much do they really believe that this can happen, that they will be successful. It's perspective. They can be motivated. They want to do it, but they, they don't think this is going to happen because it's never worked before. It's self-sabotage and it's self-fulfilling prophecy as well as the biasics. Uh, we can, I mean, getting the drugs, Greg, you have the best drugs in the world. If you can't get it, you can't access mm-hmm. it. That's a problem. And that is a huge lecture in itself. And um, the other thing that's, um, is, so that's a big thing, the belief that they can and then being able to access it, which has a lot of little layers. I know we're almost ready out of the time here because I've been seeing we only had a few minutes before this. And um, so, I, and the big thing that I think will sabotage, maybe a barrier to sabotage is the misunderstanding of um, metabolic adaptation and the weight loss. People can go into, into we can't stop this without mentioning that we can go into plateau. Plateau is good, but the body will, uh, genetics, everything will, with not going back into this or why the body will want to maintain and defend that fat mass, much to the detriment of the patient. Much like the kidneys get spared, I get hurt when you're trying to, when somebody has heart failure, which it hurts yeah. the heart. But it's the same kind of thing. And that's something patients need to understand. So they think they're fail. And, uh, and that's another thing that can be sabotage, actually very successful weight loss. And all of a sudden, they, they need to understand that whole process, which we're going to talk about. And I think yep. that's so important that our patients come in and 
they are actually very successful at weight loss. They've done it seven to eight times very successfully, but they don't understand that when they lose the weight, part of the dysregulation and the pathophysiology is that the brain sees the higher fat mass as normal and so increases the hormone of hunger, decreases satiety hormones, and decreases total energy expenditure in order to get that fat mass back up. So as I sit here today, I have higher levels of ghrelin, lower levels of satiety hormone, and a lower total energy expenditure in an effort. So that's why medication is so important. Mm. Medication offsets and helps with all of the dysregulation of the pathophysiology. That's another bias. People think the medications are weight loss medications, not medications to treat the neuroendocrine disease. Well, and also, and we don't have the right goals. People think they have to lose a lot of weight to to get metabolic improvement, and people are seeking weight loss for the wrong reason. We're look; it's all about health. It's not about getting the skinny jeans. It's not a, so. The whole thing is about health, and that's a focus for every patient. We're looking for health, healthy weight, health, health, not. Um, not aesthetics per se. I know that's their goal, but we need to make sure they understand the, the purpose of this journey they're on. So, very well said. Oh my gosh, both of you, <laughs> just making me so excited about this. Um, I, I appreciate this that you've been here to talk, and we're going to get to talk more. I'm going to give the stage over to you guys in October in Cape Cod for anyone who wants to join us. Um, Chris, you were just with us in San Diego, and you're going to be in Phoenix with us too. Angie, are you in Phoenix with us this year too? No, just Cape Cod. I well, I knew I both I wanted you both at Cape Cod. Um, this is fantastic. Uh, I appreciate both of you being here to talk about this. I appreciate my team on the back. I'm going to wrap us up here. For any of you who want to learn more, you can join us at npace.org and see what's going to happen in October in Cape Cod. We also always have continuing education at learn.npace.org. Um, thank you so much, both of you guys, for tuning in. We will get this podcast out there and it'll be in all the places that Josh said. And I just appreciate both of your time because I know how precious your time is. So thank you for thank being you for here having with us. us. Thank you. And thank Inpace for putting obesity in the forefront. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Really appreciate it.